What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's not, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Gonna, that's a good one, Matt. No, I'll tell you why. Look, I wasn't Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. And Bill, we are back. We are back and ready to roll again. It's been several months and I think everyone wants to know what you've been doing and and basically why we weren't able to record. So why don't you just, why don't you start from the beginning and recap for people that aren't following what was going on with you. Um, you know, why, why it is that you were, uh, you were moving to a different prison is what was going on. So why don't you start from the beginning? Yeah. Well, again, well, thank you for welcoming me back. It's been a while. I mean, this I've gone through, you know, from probably the worst to some of the best moments and you know, encapsulated in the last six months, which started as some of the audience knows on February the twenty second, um, they basically came to my cell and said, "Hey, you're being moved to the San Quentin ASU, which is the um, the administrative segregation unit." Which I couldn't figure out why they were doing that, but I got a rude awakening, you know. Death Row was, you know, pretty bad. You know, a lot of violence, a lot of stuff going on there. But when I went to committee that Wednesday morning, the 22nd of February, and they said, look, you have life now. We're moving you off Death Row. You would think that there's a bit of a reward for getting a lesser sentence because, you know, you're now not that bad guy. And the opposite was true, Matt. I mean, I was taken... Within four hours, I was stuck in a cage, and I thought, okay, I have to go through this process, but I'm going to go to a better place. But when I got to the ASU unit, oh, my God, I lost everything. I mean, I walked in, and they basically told me, give me everything, your clothes, your shoes, your underwear, everything. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They took everything from me. They issued me a white jumpsuit, which I looked like a freaking rodeo clown in this thing. And they gave me a roll with one sheet, and they threw me into what's called an adjustment cell. And I was familiar with the adjustment center back in the 80s on death row, but this was 10 days of isolation. No showers, no phone, nothing, just isolation. And again, I'm used to this. I've done this before, but I expected to have at least some of my basic um, utensils, you know, a spoon, a toothbrush, toothpaste, 
Well, what they gave me was about an inch and a half long toothbrush and this powdered toothpaste that would make a billy goat gag. It was bad, Matt. I mean, this is I mean, really, really bad. I asked for a mirror, no mirror. I asked for a razor, no razor. Um, showers were cold. I mean, I'm going from a luxury hotel on death row, basically, what I thought was a luxury hotel, to basically being thrown into purgatory or hell. And that's how my, you know, my indoctrination into the new life in prison was all about. And um, after 10 days, I was moved to a regular cell, and I'm thinking, great, now this process is gonna change. <laughs> all contraire, mon frere. It went from bad to basically worse in less than 10 days. This seems messed up to me because, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming you have a fairly clean record in prison. You haven't had any major transgressions. I, I was kind of under the impression you had a decent relationship with the prison administration. It seems like you're being penalized or something. You know, It seems like you're being punished, which is weird because... I, I thought the whole point was your conditions were supposed to improve. Well, that's what I thought. And I actually had that conversation with the warden there. I said, listen, why am I being punished? And his, his reply, as well as his administration, was, you're not being punished. You're here for non-disciplinary reasons. And I said, that's good and fine. But the fact remains that had I stabbed somebody or killed somebody in prison, I would have gotten the same treatment. So whether you're gonna call it I'm um, being punished or not makes no real, you know, dent in the situation because I'm being treated as if I had committed an offense, a major offense. All the people that were surrounding me were guys who had killed somebody else in prison, stabbed somebody else in prison, caught and caught with, you know, major transportation of drugs or something. But I'm there for what they call non-disciplinary reasons, pending, reception, and receiving. And my question to this, the committee was, well, I've been in prison for 40 years. You know who I am. Why do I have to go through this process if I went through it nearly 40 years ago when I first came to the prison system? Of course, they had 50 different excuses, and none of them made me sense. So I go to the committee. They give me non-disciplinary reasons for being in the hole, but I'm in the hole. I'm wearing a jumpsuit. I have no contact visits. I have no contact with anybody, period. I'm allowed to go to a, a freezing cold shower. I'm not allowed to take a razor to shave, so I, I, I had a freaking beard down to my chest. My hair, I look like freaking Wolfman Jack before I leave there, and time begins to go. So I ask, can I go to a yard? Yes, you have that privilege. I'm like, great, I'm going to the yard. Maybe at least getting out of my cell will make me feel better. <laughs> Again, all contraire, mon frere. I go to the yard and it is a 12 by 14 steel cage. There are 13 of them side by side. They have a pull-up bar, a toilet and a sink, and that's it, and steel and concrete. You go out there maybe once or twice a week, and, and that's it. And you're there next to other guys who have you know, gang members, uh, prison mafia members from gangs, uh, guys who have killed, assaulted, and they're surrounding me in these cages. 
which is fine by me. I'm not really too concerned about some clown in a, in a cage next to me. But there is a bit of isolation that you experience because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, you know, as humans, we're social creatures. So obviously, I can't run around with a scowl on my face all day. So you, know, you try to say hello to people, good morning. And the majority of them wouldn't talk to me because I'm what you call non-active. So let me break that down to you so you and the audience understands what this means. In prison now, which is a whole different ballgame than it was when I came in, the California Department of Corrections is basically trying to integrate everybody. So if you're at a prison and you are programming because you wish to re-enter society, it's part of the rehabilitative process, they have what's called a non-designated yard. It's 50-50. 50% of the people are normal general population people, which have robberies or murder or whatever, but they're considered regular people. And then there's another 50% of the population who are S and Y, special needs, people who have possibly rapes, child molestation, whatever it could be. They got beat up, they got raped in prison, whatever. They're not the tough guys. And the California Department of Corrections wants to integrate these guys. So if you're general population and you can get along with normal other people, which maybe not so normal, but other people, then you're showing signs of reintegration into society. And that's how they run the programs. These, these particular programs have better schooling, better colleges, better jobs available in prison. But at San Quentin, the ASU was for guys that didn't want to be in these programs. They basically would go to these prisons where they're being forced to go to reintegrate. And they immediately assault somebody or stab somebody or kill somebody because their position is, we don't want to be part of that. So that's what it means to be active. So when they, act, they ask me, are you active? My position was, who the fuck are you, number one? How the fuck are you going to ask me if I'm active? I got 40 years in prison, and you've been in prison six months. So basically, my position was, fuck you. So, of course, pretty soon they learned I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't care to be part of their little group of jackasses that were out there counting, you know, doing burpees and counting things like there's some kind of little gang. So I was basically isolated. They wouldn't talk to me, which, again, fuck them. But it does tend to have, you know, kind of an impact on you socially because, I, as you know, I spent nearly six months in the ASU. Six months without talking to anybody is a long time, Matt. You could say I like to be the solitude of work. I like to be by myself. But to be isolated and when the, your peers, which you would imagine are your peers in prison, will have nothing to do with you because you're non-active and they are has an effect on you um one guy and you love this man he would look at me he would just stare at me so one day and i'll have to return it and tell you what happened with this guy but it really ticked me off what this guy was trying to do it's funny because he was trying to intimidate me which was the, the most hilarious thing in the world and what i told him made him kind of think and I put all the weight I could into my eyes so he knew what I was saying and it got him to kind of change his attitude towards me so when I come back I'll get into that let me call right back Matt hey Matt yeah so keep going you're saying yeah so you're getting a gist of what's going on here it's almost like these guys by peer pressure they pressure weaker guys to kind of joining up with them and what it gives them is a sense of, 
you know, a brotherhood, a society within a society, and they can cling together. And look, I'm not gonna have any part of that. I, I, I can care less. They, they could send me into the hole for 80 years. I'm not going to succumb to pressures of idiotic morons. So this one guy is just staring at me every day. And, you know, at first I'm like, yeah, this guy, he thinks that, you know, staring at someone's going to intimidate somebody. So I finally, after like five days of going to yard, and this is over a three-week period or two-week period, he continues to look at me. And finally, I get close to the fence next to where we're caged together or right next to each other. And I told him, man, do I turn you on, man? Are you attracted to me or what the fuck? You keep looking at me like you want to date me, man. What's your problem? And he just looked and smiled and I said, man, uh, then I, I really, I put that crazy smile that I always put on my face and I told him, well, you've done the easy part, which is stare at me. So let me just fill you in. All puppies think they're wolves till they meet a wolf. And so I left that hanging that day when they opened the gates to let him out, the cop told him to stand fast. He was cuffed. I was in my cage. And of course, this guy is a puppy. He has no idea of what I've gone through in the 40 years I've been in prison. He has no idea of the caliber of killers and criminals that I've been around. I mean, caliber not by being their great people of good character. I'm just talking about complete, utter killers. And he stood next to the cage without, without even remembering that I was there. That's about how novice this guy was. And I walked as close as I could, quietly. I didn't try sneaking up, but then I just walked up to him. And he was there. And I guess he sensed my presence. He turned to me. He jumped back about three feet. And I just smiled at him. And he understood right then what I was talking about. He had no idea who I was, what I brought to the table, what kind of unique set of tools I possess. And he allowed me to sneak up on him. Now, if I had ill intentions, because he was staring at me and I was part of that type of brotherhood, by me getting that close to him, I could have done any kind of assortment of damage to him at that distance. But he allowed me to get that close, and I think it dawned on him, shit, I'm playing in a whole different league here, and this guy right here just showed me how quickly he can get close to me. It didn't change him from talking to me, but at least when he, when he was in the cage next to me, he wouldn't say anything. He wouldn't stare at me. He wouldn't even look at me. He just lowered his eyes. Hmm. So did you hear yeah. anything else from the guy, or did that kind of settle the situation? Well, that was that settled that situation. I did run across other guys. There was a guy in the cage next. I've known him for 38 years. I met him when I was in the county jail, and I was less mature, and I usually dealt with things very physically. Um, this guy was involved in that kind of gang stuff, and I thought I believe that he thought at that time that he was going to walk over me or try and take advantage of me. And as I said, I did things in the past that I'm not proud of, but I dealt with things very physically. At that time, 38 years ago, he, he tried to assault me, and I, I shattered his arm and broke three of his ribs and broke his jaw. And he came to the ASU because now he is a tipped up guy. He's a made guy. And they put him in a cage next to me one day. I think he didn't know who I was because as you know, Matt, my hair is now basically white and I have a, a goatee and I look a little different than I did when I was 19 or 20 years old. But he finally recognized who I was and he got close to the bars and he said a few words to me. They, they weren't very kind. They weren't nice. 
And um, he referred to me as, and get this, he called me the death row detective because obviously he had heard of the, the podcast I do with you and that I we break down cases together and some of the things I've done. Uh, and he knew what I was. So he, he called me that as kind of like a derogatory statement, calling me basically a cop. And he thought it was going to affect in a negative way. And I smiled. I thought, that's a hell of a compliment. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I'm educating the public, so screw you. But when I referred to him, I said, uh, yeah, definitely. He said, death row detective. I said, yeah, I hear you, victim. I called him a victim. He was one of my victims. <laughs> I don't mean from this case. But you can technically say that he was a victim to my violence at one point. Although he brought the violence to the table, I ended it very abruptly. So that was one of the only confrontations I had that were non-physical, they were more verbal, more political. But I got my, my point across, and from that point on, I had no conversation with anybody in the ASU for the six months I was there, which was frustrating as hell because, as you mentioned, I did nothing to deserve to be in the hole, but every time I, I saw my counselor and I asked him what was going on, it was the same thing. Look, we lost your paperwork. We can't find this, this sheet of paper. We can't find this. And time just kept rolling on. Five days, ten days, a month, two months, three months, four months, five months. And it just came up till finally, after some uh, folks began calling the prison asking, what is going on? Why is he still there? And OPEC got involved, which is a, a, a media outlet they get that oversees the California Department of Corrections, they kept asking questions. Why is he being punished? Why is he still there? Finally, the warden of San Quentin responded and said, listen, he'll be gone within the next two weeks. You know, the process is almost over. And of course, I left within two weeks at that point. But it was from February all the way to July that I was there. I know it wasn't this guy's intention, but... The death row detective, that sounds pretty badass. You might want to kind of steal that and use it. Absolutely, right? I mean, this guy thought that was a, a cute gesture of how to insult me. I thought, it, oh, great. You know what? I'll take that name. Thank you very much, jackass, you know? <laughs> so, look, you know, it's, it's not a, a kid saying sticks and stones will break my bones, but words never hurt me. It's kind of that thing. You can talk all you want, like I told that clown. Listen, You've done the easy part, which is look at me or say some bull. And with the smile on my face, I basically told them, if we're in the same case together, you'd be in trouble, man. Every puppy thinks he's a wolf till he meets a wolf. That's what it comes down to. So can you elaborate a little bit on the isolation and how it affected you? Because it's a little like I understand, but it's hard for me to totally wrap my head around because I look at where you were before as I mean, it is isolation. You were in your own cell that was locked and and you were there most of the day. But um, like, what was it that really I, I know you didn't have your stuff, so I, I think that's part of it. But um, like, what was it that really bothered you and how did it affect you? I know you're a resilient guy, but did you have like depression, anxiety? Uh, what were the symptoms that, that you had? Well, I, I don't think it manifested to that level. As you mentioned, I'm pretty well equipped to deal with any situation. You can send me to Siberia, I'll be fine. Yeah, it affects me. And I didn't have any of my personal property. So it's almost like an identity. You lose a bit of your identity. Um, 
other people it affects them greatly and that's why those gangs are so easily so easy they they, they recruit people so easily because the whole kind of strips you of all that identity you have and you obviously the human you cling to what you what you know uh group society and there's a society in there for me i wasn't able to use a phone so i didn't have conversation with friends i mean with you i mean you and i have a lot of conversations together you know we're both you know, you're my friend. We've known each other for so many years. How long has it been since we've spoken to each other? It was like six months. So that affected me. I didn't speak to my family. I didn't speak to friends. Uh, that affected me. Then there's the the thing of being isolated. That on death row, I had people I spoke to. There wasn't a whole lot of people, but I did speak to people. Um, people knew who I was. Um, but in the ASU, there was a hostility towards me um, because I was not active. I, what would they describe as active? Uh, that guy that got there and called him a death to reject it. He told all the guys there, which basically is everybody there, that I was doing things on true crime. I was uh, looking at uh, cold cases and trying to break them down. So that puts me almost in line with, with law enforcement, which is a deal breaker in prison that gets you killed. So there's a lot of things like that that affected me. But in, I guess the worst thing that affected me, it made me feel a bit more isolated. I, well, I knew I was isolated. I was a single man cell, like I was on death row. It did set me more to, in an island. And not having, although through communication of a phone, and not having conversations with you and family, it did make me feel a bit isolated. I'm not sure if you can call it depression, but it did affect me a bit. Would it have killed me? No. Would it have gotten me to kill myself? No. Did it really make that much of a difference? A bit, not so much. But I wanted, to, I had responsibilities, Matt. You understand this. I mean, if you got put in jail tomorrow and you couldn't really deal with your responsibility, your car payments, your, you know, your job, all these things, they would affect you. For me, it was, I couldn't do death row diaries. I couldn't do some of the things I do. I couldn't continue writing my books. There was uh, a, a void between my publisher and I, uh, my agents and I. So there's a lot of different things that played a part and the more time that went by, it felt like in my heart that I was letting a lot of people down. A lot of contracts weren't signed. A lot of people didn't, uh, were not able to do things because I wasn't there and I felt like I was letting them down. So that had a, a also kind of a psychological effect on me. So what happened to all your stuff? You know, I, uh, myself, I'm kind of a minimalist. I don't own a bunch of junk, but I have certain things that mean a lot, you know, photographs, um, just books and, you know, sentimental things like that. Um, and you, you must have accumulated. I mean, you can't, you can't accumulate that much stuff because you're in a small cell, but I'm sure you had uh, a lot of things that, that were important to you. Sure, you know, there's music. I, mean, I love to listen to music. The, my stereo was taken from that. I didn't have... The worst thing of all was the food. Because you're in the hole, they tend to feed you less protein and more carbs. So I gained a bit of weight. I, I'm usually about, you know, 202 pounds solid. I went up to like 211. And over a six-month period, you're eating potatoes, you're eating a bunch of rice. There's no meat. It's basically a plant-based diet. When you go to the store, I was not able to buy food pouches like meat, uh, roast beef, tuna, mackerel. 
that affected me more than anything because I am a freaking beast when it comes to working out. So I couldn't keep that level. So I didn't feel as um, as potent, if you want to call it, or as powerful. And that's a weird word to use, but I didn't feel like myself. So yeah, that, all those things, the food, the, the items I couldn't have, I couldn't have my books, I couldn't have my writing much. Hell, I was writing with a pen filler. I, they, they wouldn't even give you a pen to write with because people made knives out of them or they used them as weapons. So there's a lot of things that you had to adjust to. And I started writing a new book. The book I'm writing now is called uh, Prison Rules, The Convict Code, A Prisoner's Guide to Life in Prison. I began writing that based on what I was experiencing. But again, writing with a pen filler is almost impossible. Why did they change the diet? Why, why did they give you all these carbohydrates? Is that just a coincidence or is there some reason behind that? Well, I believe it's because they don't want guys eating a lot of protein, having a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I believe that the diet's based on really to slow guys down, to keep you, you know, the, the temperature in the place is super cold. It's always, they put the air conditioning on so it's super cold. Guys aren't willing to be up running around. They give you minimal clothes. So you're constantly trying to bundle up to be warm because it's freezing in there. So all these things, I believe, have a psychological reasoning as to why they do it. And the big thing is to get keep guys from being violent. That doesn't work. I mean, come on, man. You can make somebody cold and all of a sudden that makes them non-violent. Yeah, that usually gets pussies to be like that. But guys who have an intent can give a damn about that. All right, well, let's pick this up when you get back. All right, absolutely. Hey, man. Yeah, so as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, you're now out of that, well, you're you're out of that whole facility altogether. Uh, so I want to talk about that process. But did you get your stuff back? Yeah, actually, I have. Well, I've gotten what I kept. I, I'm a minimalist. I, uh, I got rid of a lot of the things that I had. And I sold CD players. I basically left San Quentin when I left. I don't want to jump the gun here, but I left with about four apple-sized boxes that basically was everything in my life. My books, my manuscripts I've written, a television, my stereo, and some food and clothing. That's basically everything I had and the photographs that I've kept over the years. That's it. So at some point, someone comes and, and says it's time to go. Did you, you must have not had any, um, uh, you know, inclination that was going to happen because you didn't have any contact with anyone, right? So that must have just came out of nowhere. Well, sort of. So let me be completely candid here. There isn't much that goes on in San Quentin that I didn't know about. So when the, the warden was contacted by loved ones and asked, like, why is he still there? He gave them the answer, within two weeks he'll be gone. So the Sunday, I'm sorry, the Friday before I left, which I believe was July the 1st or the last day of June, a particular officer I'd known for years came up to me and said, hey, Noguera, you're gone this coming week. I said, no shit. He said, yeah. I said, what day? And he just blinked at me and said, the 6th of July. You didn't hear that from me. I'm like, great, thank you. I mean, they don't tell you because they don't want someone to try and 
break you out or some crazy shit like that, which I had no intention of doing. But it, it wasn't absolutely true because that Sunday, which I believe was the second or whatever it was of July, I believe it was the second of July. It was actually Monday at two in the morning or two thirty in the morning. I hear someone knock on my on my cell door, and it was real simple. I said, "Nogera," and I, I, my, my eyes were open. I said, "Yeah, I'm up. What's going on?" And they said, "You got thirty minutes. You're being transported." That was Monday morning, two thirty at three fifteen that morning. They came to my cell. All I had was half a box, a shoe box of stuff. Um, and I went downstairs. I went to the process of getting my property. All of the stuff I had from death row, they transported to the transportation area. They put a red paper jumpsuit on, on me. They put shackles on my legs, shackles around my waist, shackled my, my uh, wrists, put a black box around my wrist so I can't jimmy the, the, uh, the handcuffs and within an hour and a half I was seated in a bus a, a California Department of Corrections transportation vehicle which is a big bus like an RTD bus and we were on our way out the gate of San Quentin for the first time for me and you know 30 plus 35 plus years 36 years so what did you notice when you're on that bus you hadn't been outside of, of prison gates in, as you said, 40 years or thereabouts. So, you know, you obviously, you, you have a TV, you read, you talk to people, so you know, you know what's going on in the world, but there must have been a, a bit of a shock to the system just to actually be out on the, on the highway. And, you know, it is I-5. It's not the most pristine... Uh, or, or visually complex place out there, but you know it is California, and it's it's beautiful, and and you really you hadn't experienced that in so long. I can't even imagine your mind must have been kind of racing. Oh, absolutely! I mean, I was looking forward to it. Don't ever think that I, I was excited to leave. People thought, "Well, oh, you're going to be nervous because you're going to." No, I wasn't nervous at all. I was looking forward. To, I wanted to get the hell out of San Quentin. I mean, that place, it just, I didn't want to be there anymore. So when I get in the bus, I'm excited. Um, yeah, you go outside, you see these, I, I didn't see now one old car. I mean, anything over 15 years old was non-existent. When I was first in prison, you saw Chevys, you saw, you know, Impalas, you saw, you know, Bel Airs, you saw, you know, older cars from the 70s, muscle car. I didn't see one muscle car. I didn't see one Volkswagen. I didn't see one older Porsche, nothing. It was all these plastic Japanese cars. Like, what the hell? But as this is happening, I'm taking all this stuff in. One thing I did not expect that shocked my system and it would make the trip into a nightmare was this. So obviously this is a RTD bus that the California Department of Corrections has made into a transportation vehicle. But it's state of the art. It's got air conditioning, comfortable seats, it's a nice bus, so I'm expecting a nice ride. But as soon as we come out of the gates, we turn up and we start going across, you know, through the landscape and we're picking up speed. The one thing that catches me by surprise is that once we get going around 60, 70 miles an hour, 
I'm holding the seat cushions as hard, as hard as I can because I'm terrified. I'm literally terrified of how fast they're going. The landscape is shooting by me so quickly that I don't know, I'm not processing it. I've been standing still for 40 years. Suddenly, I'm moving and moving rather f fast. And the bus turns. So at one point during the trip, I realized we're not coming to the prison I've been told I'm coming to. I was told I was going to Corcoran State Prison in Kings County next to Bakersfield. The situation is different. I'm headed up north. I'm looking at the signs. I'm going towards Sacramento. And I'm wondering what the hell's going on. But by that time, I'm so concerned about the motion sickness that the landscape going by, I could close my eyes. And with closing my eyes comes the motion sickness. So basically the next three hours is a nightmare to get there. And where I'm going is I'm actually going to Mule Creek. Mule Creek is a level four prison for super high risk protective custody. And I, I get them asking, what the hell am I doing here? And the answer was, tomorrow's the 4th of July. There is no transportation. You'll be here for a two night overnight stay. So I was thrown in a hole for two days in Neal Creek where I sat in a cell for basically 48 hours until they get, came to get me at two in the morning again. And this time they're bringing me to the prison that I was assigned to, which is Corcoran. And that bus ride was five hours of the same nightmare because of the motion sickness. It just really shocked my system. Yeah, I remember my dad got off of a... He finished a sailing trip, so he was out on the ocean for like a month. And so, you know, spatially, it, your, your eyes and your brain just kind of adjust. And when he got back, he was like running into walls and like, you know, just like running his car into, you know, into everything. Like, because uh, you're just, uh, you're completely, your equilibrium is thrown off. Um is there anything else? Like, were you looking at the people in the cars um, from the window? Or? Well, not, I mean, yeah, not really. I was, like I said, I didn't feel well. I really didn't feel well. I look at some of the mask. I realized the prison I was coming to was in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's all just agriculture. They call Corcoran the agricultural capital of California. So it was fields. I didn't see a whole lot. Um, but I, most of them I remember my eyes closed because it was bothering me. And um, when I got to the prison, you know, it's, the first thing I noticed was the heat. It was like 107 degrees. And in San Quentin, the hottest it get, gets is like 80 in the summer. So I immediately noticed the heat um, when I got off the bus. And the prison is substantially newer. This prison's only about 25 years old, or maybe 30 years old. Um, but when I got here, I got the second shock, which was when they told me, I, and they, they, they processed me, they gave me my ID, they gave me my blues, my role, and I'm about to go to the unit I'm being assigned to. They tell me, you're going to 4B, 1L section B. I know this place. I know what happens in 4B, 1L section B. It is the gladiator's pit. This is the old shoe unit, the security housing unit for Corcoran, where if you Google it, you'll find 
that all these guys were pitted to fight against each other. They arrested lieutenants, a bunch of the guys, for pitting these guys against each other. They opened doors and let these guys basically fight to their, one of them was non-responsive. This is one of the killing pits in the late um, 80s and early 1990s. So my first question was, why am I going to the old shoe? I haven't done anything. And, you know, a guard who had been here for a while said, Noguera, just hear me out. It's not what you think. Give it a chance. Of course, I'm thinking, what the hell? Give it a chance. I'm going to the shoe. It can't be good. Well, I received a huge shock. And that's the understatement of my life when I walked into the unit, which is the 4B1L Section B. So you were referring, just to go back real quick, to a scandal which caused some uproar where the prison guards were um, sanctioning kind of fight to the death uh, fights that they were betting on. And your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. They, They were pitting prisoners against each other to bet on it or just for their own sick amusement. Uh, and this went on for quite a Correct. while, right? Correct, yeah, absolutely. And this is the building it happened. So, of course, that worried me because, look, I don't have much trouble or worries about physical conversation with other men. I've been living that my whole life. But because I am going, I was supposed to go to a level two, because I am, you know, my, my, my mental state's rehabilitated because I'm trying to resume a normal life to be reintegrated into society, I don't want problems. I mean, even if somebody assaults you and I defend myself, it's still on your jacket as being an assault or some type. And what if the guy dies? Now I'm looked upon as a guy who hasn't learned any lessons. You know, after 40 years, you're still doing the same things. So I didn't want that problem. So you can, you can imagine my worry it wasn't so much for my own personal physical safety, but rather how my record's going to look. Yeah. So you went uh, to Corcoran from San Quentin, I guess, you know, you you went from a bay to a desert, ecologically a very different place. Um, So I'm sure that was a little bit, I don't know, shocking, but I'm sure that that had an effect, like you said, the weather. Uh, What about the actual facility? Is this uh, an improvement? Well, yeah, well, that's okay. Here, here's the big shock that I came to. So I walk in the building, and the officer who was escorting me, I have no cuffs on, by the way. They haven't handcuffed me. I walk in the building, he says, good luck, and he turns around and walks their way. I'm like, what the hell? I'm escorted everywhere when I was in San Quentin. So I walk into the building, I knock on the door, and the officer who was there says, hey, no care. Hey, welcome to you know, uh, 4B1, step in. So he opens the door and I walk in and then that's where the shock hits me. So I want you, I want you the audience and you to take, take a look at this in your own minds. So the building is half of a pie. Think of a pie, half a pie. And the pie has three slices, left and right. Right where the crust would be, there are 20 cells. And those cells would open towards the middle of the pie where the, the pumpkin pie would be. And there, that's called a day room. There, there's a first floor and a second floor and there's stairs on each side. When I walked in, the first thing I noticed there's a bunch of theater-like seats in the front and there's a 62-inch 62, a 62 color flat screen TV on the far wall. And men 
black, white, Hispanic, all sitting together watching television at the tables. They're playing chess. They're all inter- they're mingling. There's no problem. And one guy immediately walks up. He shakes my hands and introduces himself. Says, "Welcome to the unit." That's the first shock. Let me re- let me call back and tell you the rest of the shocks that hit me as I was going through. I'll call back. Thank you for using Global Tail Link. All right, Matt. Yeah, so compared to what you're used to, uh, I mean, forgive me, but this is actually relatively normal. Things are more yeah, normal absolutely. here. Yeah, it, it, it reminded me of, of a college dormitory. The doors are all open. Guys are walking in and out. People are going to school, to college. People are coming home from work. Um, right away, the guy that was going to be my cellie was already informed that this guy from death row is coming. He walks down the stairs, shakes my hand, helps me carry my things to the cell that he and I are going to share. Um, it's a larger cell. It's double the size of the one in San Quentin. There's two bunks side by side. They're concrete slabs. You put your mattress on it. There's shelves where you can put your things. You know, he has a television. My television comes with me. Um, but right away, he says, look, let me give you a tour of the place so you know what's going on. I'm getting the impression of a freaking college campus. There are telephones on the wall. I still don't have my tablet, which I'm hoping to get soon. Um, there's been a bit of a, of a mix-up with GTL, and they're supposed to have it, but I don't have one yet. Um, but they have a kiosk on the wall that I can log on to. I can see my text messages. I can, I can call people like I'm doing now, and I can text people. So right away, I noticed when I turn around, there's a microwave against the far wall that we can use. There's an ironing board. You can check out with your ID and iron. That shocked the hell out of me. On death row, you give the guy an iron, he's going to smack somebody over the head with it. So it's just completely different. And he says, come on, you know, let's go outside. He just opens the door. I'm thinking, don't you have that permission? No, no, it's, it's good, fine. We, we can just walk out. I walk out, and he shows me these two yards, and those are the gladiator pits. They're cement blocks where... You know, they're very small. They're maybe 45 feet by maybe 30 feet. There's two yards next to each other. He said, no, no, this is part of the day. We can come out here and play handball. You can work out here if you like. There's a pull-up bar. There's toilet facilities. He says, no, no, let me take you to the real yard. I'm thinking, what real yard? So he goes to another door. He opens the door, and I step out, and I'm like, holy hell, what is this? This place is like three football fields. And the first thing I notice is guys cutting the grass. There's guys watering the grass. The grass is perfectly green. There are volleyball courts, tennis courts, basketball courts. There's freaking badminton uh, courts. There's a, a basketball f- uh, court. There's also a, uh, a soccer field, which is you know called football. There are uh, horseshoe throwing contests. There's a put for. I guess it's bocce ball, whatever the people in Italy play with little balls they throw against the freaking thing, they bounce them off each other. There are, um, let me see, what else? I mean, there's every kind of, oh, there's elliptical machines, there's rowing machines, there's walking machines, there's running machines. Um, there is a, uh, a baseball diamond. And then I walk to the far end, there's a shack that you give me your ID, you can check out weights, uh, kettlebells, big tractor tires, there's mats, there's ab rolling machines. This freaking place is Disneyland. So, how many uh, hours a day are you confined to the cell? <laughs> You're not. 
the doors open at 6.15 a.m. and they remain open and you can basically be in a day room and walk outside. They have opening, like at 8.30, they open all doors, you go outside. You got, if I'm close custody, so I have to come back by 12 and be counted. Once they count me, boom, I, I bolt outside again. I can bolt outside and be out there till like 3.30. I come in, they count us at 4 or 4.30. We have dinner, and they open the doors again at 6 o'clock. I'm out there until 8.30 at night. That's great. That must be pretty liberating based on what you were experiencing before. You were in the cell for, what, you only got to go out to the yard for an hour or two? Yeah, and that was every couple days because death row had locked everything down because of COVID, and and really the yards were ran maybe two or three times a week. So this is, yeah, a completely different ballgame. Um, it took me two weeks. I went out there every chance I could to work out. The funny part is I lost 10 pounds. I had gained just water weight or whatever from being in the hole eating that garbage. I've already dropped. I'm down to 197. I imagine I'll get down to 191, which is my fighting weight. And I'm out there every day, twice a day working out. But of course, now it's wearing on me. I'm like, okay, I don't need to be out here every day. And I started working on the podcast. I started working on you know the book. So I'm you know, getting certain hours, I'll be out there every day or every, you know, every two days on, one day off. I'm studying more. I'm getting acclimated to the program. But all in all, this has been a pleasant change. This is a rehabilitated program for people who have expectations of paroling someday. I have those same expectations someday to parole. And as soon as I'm allowed to go to a board, I will go to the board and I will hopefully by then have all the classes I need. I've already signed up for all the SAP classes, which are self-help groups. I've signed up for anger management, Alcohol Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, um, you know, self-reflection, all these different classes that they offer here. I'm taking them as well as college. So I probably won't get a normal job. I'd rather go to school get all my credits I need so when I do go to a parole board parole board would find me adequate for possible parole so were you nervous meeting the cellmate because you haven't really been in uh, close quarters with someone in many years you had your own cell in on death row in San Quentin so that did that make you nervous that you're going to have to share the space with someone? Because you don't know who this guy is. You know, it's it's kind of the luck of the draw. It's like getting a roommate in college. You know, the guy could be a weirdo, and you're kind of stuck with him. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the first night I was there, didn't sleep. I stayed up the whole night just trying to figure who this guy was. Did he have an agenda? But I didn't feel any – none of the guys I've met here have I felt attention. I haven't felt that they're setting me up for something. None of that stuff exists here, which at banquet it was an everyday thing. So after a couple of nights, I slept a few hours. Now I'm sleeping, you know, my normal five hours a night. You know, he is a, a new guy. You just meet him. I've only known him for a couple of weeks. Seems like a decent guy, very clean, which is very important to me. But I'm never in the cell. He spends you know, 90% of the time in the cell doing whatever he does. With me, as soon as that door cracks, I'm gone. I take my bag. It has, you know, towel, soap, shampoo, everything I have. And I basically go work out, come in, shower, because I can shower anytime I want to rather than on death row. I had a particular time I had to be cuffed up and taken to the shower. Here, I shower whenever I want, as many times as I want a day. So I spend very little time in the cell. I basically leave the cell, and at night I go to sleep there. That's it. 
Wow. Well, yeah, it must be. Do you feel more relaxed? Do you, do you feel a little bit more at peace? Um, I'm just trying to think like if I, you know, I think everyone goes through periods where you're not able to, to exercise for a week or whatever and or, or you're eating bad food because you don't have access to, to the stuff that you need or whatever. And, um, and you know, you, you just feel physically and mentally not on your game. And anyway, do, do you feel any kind of relief or do you feel like you're in a better place? Well, I believe I'm in a better place because the people around me are more geared towards parole and reintegrating themselves in society. Do I feel any difference? I don't think I, I do. I, I just, it was a little uncomfortable to get used to. It's a better place. I enjoy this better. But for me, I'm a, I'm a pretty simple animal. I, once I get acclimated, I start working. And it, I'm a workaholic, so I'm already reviewing cases that you and I will be thinking and look at the next few weeks of Death Row Diaries. I'm eager to get back to the same stuff I was doing. So, uh, more relaxed? Probably not. I feel the same. Uh, being around a bunch of high-profile or you know killers that are, are really serious doesn't really play on me that much. I'm pretty used to it. So that doesn't affect me, but the overall place itself with the type of uh, access I have to classes, to college, to the things that the things that can help me, that part, absolutely, I feel much better and a lot more optimistic that something good is going to come from this. Yeah, so you got a lot of stuff going on, and I'm sure we'll hear more about those projects um as far as what we're doing we're just gonna pick up where we left off we're gonna start uh breaking down cases and um you know you're able to now maybe talk about some things that you weren't before because it, it was a little bit of a delicate situation i don't think you really cared but in the name of self-preservation you weren't about to talk about the people that you were on death row with because that would have been kind of reckless but now it doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, there was a lot of guys there that, you know, we didn't care about. There were child molesters or weirdos or child killers, so I could, could have cared less. But yeah, it was probably good practice not to bring them up because of where I was. Somebody could have took it the wrong way. I wasn't trying to run around the, the, the freaking yard with a with a fire suit on soaked in gasoline, right? So, but now um, I don't think anybody cares. I will say this, that the first day on the yard, I don't know how they knew or if they knew at all, but I met a serial killer. And right away, I began to try and figure him out. So I think there's going to be opportunities of possibly bringing people on the show. Um, I've already began to talk to to the people here, I mean, the, the warden's office and people there are possibly expanding the show where we can bring people on. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, but I'm playing it day for day, year by year. But I think the audience is going to get... A, a good show we're going to get um, stuff we couldn't talk about before and they're going to get the same perspective they've gotten for the past I don't know hundred and some episodes that we've done that which is really a unique look at the criminal mind the criminal perspective and serial killers which the audience loves to listen to, listen to. and we have a bunch of cases you and I have spoken about that we're bringing to the forefront in the next couple of episodes and yeah, I, I look forward to it this is something I've been looking forward to six months and we're finally here yeah, it's been a long time, and I'm glad that a lot of our uh, subscribers and 
you know, fans of the show stuck with us. I, I'm sure they understand the situation, but, um, you know, we were picking up a little momentum and I didn't want to really stop the show, but we didn't have any choice. But anyway, we're back now, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I, I want to personally thank all of the audience for listening and staying loyal. I mean, we've been gone for six months. You guys have hung in there. Uh, we promise you we're going to bring you some exclusive shows, some things that with content that no one's ever heard before or talked about. So as a way of thanking you, just please understand that uh, you're thought of, you're, you're appreciated, and you know, you're the best audience in the world, and we're going to bring you stuff that is really going to blow your mind in the episodes to come. Uh, you know, as a reminder, you know, to get insight about what I'm doing, besides what Matt and I do, uh, please um, subscribe, you know, sign on. It's free to my newsletter at my website, artistwilliamnagara.com. You can just sign on there and chip mail or MailChimp, whatever the hell it is, will deliver a, um, a newsletter every two weeks about different subjects that I talk about. So everything is tied to what Matt and I are doing, and we really appreciate you. So thank you. Yeah, so that uh, newsletter you can sign up on your website. I'll put a link to it. I believe I did put a link to it on Instagram. I got to check, which is, by the way, at Death Row Diaries. If you want to check out Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, all of that is at Death Row Diaries. Um, So, yeah, I guess uh, we'll be back next time to talk about some creepy douchebag killer type guy and break down what makes him work and uh anything else before we go bill no just glad to be back and um i'm glad to be talking to you matt it's been a while man i think as crazy as this sound but yeah i miss talking to you i missed our show and i missed the, <laughs> some of the conversations we had and the laughter we have 60 seconds remaining so yeah definitely well until next time i've been matt ralston and I'm William Nagara. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.